Welcome back. Hope everybody had a good break. Um, our last break of the year, I guess, because Thanksgiving really doesn't affect us since it's Thursday and Friday. So we still have, unless, unless you're taking a longer break that time, of course, but we have class Monday and Wednesday that week. So really our last break until the final. Um, coming up, we do have the second article review due today. So if you did the first one, you can skip this one if you completely forgot about it and do the third one, which will be due uh, early in November. I'll give you the exact date coming up. Um, if you didn't do the first one, make sure you do this one because you got to do two of them for credit. So if you get the first two done, then you can just completely forget it and you're happy with your grades, you can completely forget about the third one. So if you're happy with your grades, do the first two, happy with your grades on them, you can completely skip number three. So you don't even, ha don't even have to turn it in. Um, if you're turning it in in here, that's great. If not, you can, you do ha you can submit it up on D2L up until 6 o'clock tomorrow for full credit. So make sure you get that in. Question? Um, so with the article reviews, if you do all three of them, do you still like, drop the lowest grade? I'll drop your lowest grade. So yeah, if, you, if you're not happy with one, but, but the thing is, if you got like a, a 45 and a 50, just say, it's almost not worth doing that because the most you're going to get is a few points. So if you did poorly on one, then yeah, if you do all three of them, I don't mind if you do all three. I just try to tell you that there are cases where it's not worth your, I don't want you to spend the time reading the article and writing up the review when it's not going to make more than a couple point difference in your grade. But yeah, if you did not do well on one, or, and then certainly you can do all three. I'll take your two highest grades will be what are recorded. But that means if you did well, like if you got a 50 and a 50, there's absolutely no reason to do the third one because can't help your grade. You can't do better than 50. So if you got a perfect score on the first two, which happens from time to time, you don't even need to worry about the third one at all. So that is due today. Make sure I get that if you're submitting it up on D2L sometime before 6 o'clock tomorrow, and I'll get those graded as soon as I can for you. Um, solar observations I'm going to look at. I'm going to ask you to turn those in one more time next week. So again, I'm looking for one new one since the last time. And I collected those, what was it, a couple weeks? Was it a week ago? I don't remember. Beginning of the week, 7th. So about two weeks before. That's a little bit early. I may put that off. I'll let you know next. For, for right now, it's due, due Wednesday of next week. I may change that. That's a little bit closer to the other one. I'd rather give you a little bit more time to try to get one more in there. So that may go, that may go a little bit later because that's not one I mind having you turn in the same day even as an exam because it's not any extra not any big amount of extra work. It's just getting one more observation or turning in your data sheet. That, that may change. Homework three should be pretty good for the 30th. And I do have homework three for you. Um, and that covers the units that we're working on right now. We're finishing up chapters 17 through 19 this week. And in fact, I think we only have 19 to go. Chapter 19 we have to finish today. Here you go. Here you go. And here you go. Oop, almost made it. So we'll be doing that. Next week we'll be doing 20 and 21 on star formation. And then we'll start talking about um, the evolution of stars, what happens at the end of their lives in chapter 22. The more, in, well, that's, that's interesting, but the kind of cool stuff comes up after the exam, which is when we talk about neutron stars, black holes, you know, all the very end states of a star. So that doesn't come up in this unit. We'll get to that in the next, we will get to it, but that'll be in the next one. So that will be due on the 30th. We should be through all that material by then, and then the exam likely will be the 6th the following week. I won't be doing it on we're not going to get through it. We might be through all the material to do it on the 30th, but it would be pushing it. So I'm going to make sure, give us a little bit of leeway. It would be the following week would probably be the third exam. All right. Questions? All righty. Well, we can maybe close that and get our picture. Oh, picture is about a few days, uh, a few days early for us. We're not quite to this yet, but actually fits, ties in pretty well with what we're going to be looking at next week. This is an object known as BHB2007, catalog designation for any of these objects, and it is actually a baby binary star that is forming. I did, I did mention binary stars, but we really didn't go over star formation yet. That's next week's topic. So 
what we're going to look at is this is two stars, but they're in the process of forming. And this is taken with a, um, a radio telescope, microwave telescope that looks at millimeter size wavelength. So a little shorter than the regular, typical radio waves that we look at. And that allows it to use things like interferometry to get really high resolution. So we're actually looking in detail at a star that is in the process of forming, and in fact, two stars here. And you can see not the stars themselves, but actually the disks of material that are collapsing down to form the stars. So these are what will eventually become the stars. Now, the process is not fast. We're never going to see these stars actually form in our lifetimes. You know, maybe in a few hundred thousand, a million years from now, there'll be a new binary star formation, stars that have formed there. Uh, binary stars, most star systems are multiple. Our sun's unusual in that it's just one star there. More than half the stars in the universe are in multiple star systems, meaning that there could be two, three, four stars together. Uh, the nearest one to us, Alpha Centauri isn't just one star, it's actually three stars. There's two stars that orbit close together like this, and there's a small star that orbits out around them. So not unusual to see those, even among very uh, nearby stars. So some of, the most, some of the closest stars are also binary systems, so multiple star systems. The rest of the material is leftover material. Size-wise, this is about the size of our solar system from edge to edge, that's about how big our solar system is. That's how much detail, uh, how fine resolution we're getting, how much detail we're looking at to be able to see this. We're seeing something that from edge to edge here is about the same as the orbit of Neptune. So we're seeing a lot of detail, and this could be material that could eventually form into, form into planets. We know that the stars are forming. Could planets form around it too? And planetary formation is something we also talk about next week. So. So this would have been a real great one for Monday of next week, but just leading in a little bit to kind of give you a preview of what we'll be looking at next week, uh, planets could form here. Now, it's harder to form a planet in a binary system because it's hard to get a stable orbit. If you get too close to one star, that accelerates you, and it may push you too close to the other star, and then you collide, you get kicked out of the system altogether. So it's quite possible that it's a lot harder to form planets in binary systems. Not impossible. Generally, you either get a planet that forms really close to one star in a stable orbit or really far away from both. Those are the kind of easy stable orbits to get. You can get some really weird things like nice figure eights that go around there, but they're not, not generally stable. Any little modifications to the orbit will eventually, that planet won't survive. So you could get a planet in a system like this, not likely one that's going to have life to it, though. Because you've got two stars there. Even though science fiction loves to put two stars in the sky, the problem is unless you're you know, maybe really far away and you're just at the right area, but you've got to remember you're getting here. At some point, you're going to be closer to the stars, especially if you try to go you know, in any of these cool little orbits. You get really close to the stars, it's going to get hot. You get really far away from the stars, it's going to get cold. So your temperature variations are going to be a lot larger than you're going to get around just orbiting a single star. And so it would really depend on the exact configuration of the orbits. It could be done, but it's going to be a lot harder than it is around a star like our sun. Questions? So we'll look a lot more at this next week. Yeah? What kind of telescope capture these again? It is a radio telescope, a millimeter, that measures millimeter wavelengths. So little bit, typically radio telescopes, we talk about centimeters and meters. These are a little bit smaller wavelengths. means they can get better resolution because they're a lot smaller wavelength. And that, that radio waves are able to penetrate the dust. We couldn't see this with an optical telescope because there's all this dust around it. The, the radio telescopes can see through that. Good. Others? Before we... Go ahead and start for today and see if we can get through all of 19 before I break. Oops, we don't want to go back to the beginning because we'd already started on. So we'd done 17 and 18, so we really needed to look at 19. Chapter 19 talks about determining distances to the stars. It's one of the toughest things to be able to do to find distances. 
in astronomy, not just to stars, but to any other objects. Even not so long ago within our solar system, just trying to find distances a hundred, hundred, a couple hundred years ago was not something easy. So there are some ways to do it, but they're really one of the more difficult things, the distances, the masses, some of those things are really tough to be able to get. Within our solar system, we can use radar. Again, that's still only something that's about 60, 60 some years old, 60, 70 years old, uh, dating back to the time right after World War II. But you can use radar to bounce a signal off a solid surface. That works for really close objects, things that are close to us, such as Venus, Mars, we can do that. We can bounce a signal off of Venus, see how long it takes and how long it gets to, takes to get back. The thing is, we know how fast those radio waves are traveling. Right? They're radio waves, they're electromagnetic radiation, they travel at the speed of light. So just like light travels at 300,000 kilometers per second, radio waves, x-rays, gamma rays, all travel at 300,000 uh, 300, kilometers per second. So you can measure, send a radar signal to Mars, bounce it back. So it takes some amount of time to get there, some amount of time to get back. And you can then figure out how far away Mars is from the Earth at that moment. Now, as you might guess, it varies depending on where Mars is in its orbit. Some points it's really close to us if it's right behind us away from the sun. Sometimes it can be all the way on the other side of the sun. So the distance can vary, but we can determine the distance at various different points. And it allows us to then calibrate and figure out how big an astronomical unit actually is. I can tell you it's 150 million kilometers. But how did we actually determine that? It took measurements of radar measurements of Venus to be able to actually get it calibrated to find an actual value. So we had the scale of the solar system, 1 AU for the Earth, 5 AUs for Jupiter, 10 for Saturn, and so on. We knew that before we knew how big an AU actually was. It took this kind of thing to be able to calibrate, to be able to calibrate it and get really accurate measurements. There are some geometrical ways to do it as well, but it's a lot harder. I do mention when we calculate that, you've got to divide it by two. Right? If it takes, say, five minutes for the, light to get to, for the radar signal to get to Mars, it's going to take it five minutes to get back. So you're actually measuring the whole round trip distance. If you just want to find out how far Mars is away, it's half of that. But if you know the velocity, you know the time that it took, you can then determine the distance. So you know the velocity. That's given for any, radi any radar, radar, radar wave, radio wave. It's 300,000 kilometers per second. Just multiply that by half of the time that it took to get there and back. So say five minutes. Then you can tell the distance. Get the distance directly, a direct signal of the distance. This only works in the inner solar system. And it only works for objects that have a solid surface. You can't use it for the sun. You can't bounce a radar signal off the sun. It doesn't have a solid surface to bounce anything off of. As you recall, hopefully, from the last, last section, you try to bounce a radar signal off the sun, it's just going to get absorbed. So you're not going to get any a signal there. When you start to get to the outer solar system, there are some solid surfaces out there in terms of the moons. But they're so far away that that signal deteriorates over that distance, when you're talking about hours that the signal has to travel out and then get back, you're not going to get a strong enough signal back to be able to record. <clears throat> so it really works only in the inner part of the solar system and only for those couple planets, especially Mars and Venus. Well, Moon would work fine too. Uh, but anything solid and anything pretty close to us. But we need other ways to be able to determine distances once we get outside of the solar system. This will definitely not work to any other object. You can, you can detect a solid planet elsewhere. If you can imagine, you can't really use this going to the outer solar system. Forget about going to the nearest star. You could send the radar signal out there. It would go. Send it to Alpha Centauri. It's going to take it four and a half years to get there. Four and a half years to get back. And think of how much it's degraded and spread out over that. You're going to have a tiny fraction of the signal that hits anything there and an even tinier fraction that ever makes it back to the Earth. So it would not be detectable, and you'd be waiting nine years almost 
to be able to get that signal back. So it's not effective outside of the inner portion of our solar system. What we can use is parallax. Now, we mentioned parallax way, way back when we talked about the Greek astronomers and why they said that the Earth had to be the center of the solar system, because they couldn't detect parallax. So just a little review here, what is parallax? Is the change in the position of an object due to the change in the position of the observer. So a nearby object is going to shift its position. I get this as I walk back and forth in front of the classroom. Students in the front shift positions relative to students in the back. You can be on the right side of, the, of a person here, and I can walk over to the other side of the room, and all of a sudden you're on the left side. So position is changing. It's because my, my, my position is changing. So the same thing would happen with the stars. A nearby star, if we observe it on one side of the Earth's orbit, would look in one direction versus in the other side of the Earth's orbit, six months later, it's going to appear in a different position against the background. So just as students move, as I go back and forth in front of the classroom, you're not really moving, you're staying in the same spot, but your position relative to more distant objects changes. And the closer something is compared to even further objects, the faster, the larger the shift will be. So the larger a shift I get in position, and I could, you could use that to measure the distances. So I could figure out an angle for somebody, okay, they're at this angle at this point, I could figure out how much that angle changed, I could then calculate the distance kind of an inefficient way to calculate the distance within the classroom because I can just get a tape measure and measure it a lot faster. But for measuring things at larger distances, if you're trying to measure things you know, out in a field over large distances, it's, an, it's a more efficient way to be, it is an efficient way to be able to do it. Uh, parallax, triangulation, very similar thing. It's doing the same kind of thing, measuring at two different positions, measure that angle, and that gives you Know how long your baseline is, figure out what your distance is. Essentially, it's something the Greeks knew about. It's really a geometrical effect. So we need to, in order to do it, we need to be able to measure a couple of things. We do need to know what this baseline is, how far we've moved. And we need to measure the angular shift. How, by how much, what is this angle that the person shifted by? Or the object shifted by? And once we do that we can then triangulate in on the distance. That gives us a way to be able to determine the distances. Now, I mentioned that we knew of this long ago. The Greeks knew of parallax. They knew it should exist, but they couldn't detect it. That's one of the reasons they said, hey, the Earth can't be moving, because if the Earth was moving, you know, they, weren't, they were doing something very scientific in it. They were using a scientific method. Hey, if the Earth moves, we should be able to detect parallax. Therefore, Earth, we don't detect parallax, therefore the Earth is not moving. Now, of course, the other option they did not consider that maybe the stars are so far away that we can't measure this angle. Because the larger the distance, the smaller this angle gets. And they did not comprehend the true distances that were involved, how far away things were, how large the universe actually was. So to try to measure the parallax of a star was they couldn't have done it with their technology. In fact, it wasn't until 1838 that we had the technology detailed enough to be able to measure this. The first, par first star that was measured happens to be a relatively nearby star named 61 Cygni in the constellation of Cygnus, has a parallax of 0.3 arc seconds. The star with the largest parallax is a little over one uh, arc second. That's actually... The way they measure the angle, it's the complete angle. The actual parallax angle that we use is half that. So really Alpha Centauri is about three-quarters of an arc second. I know, got to go back and review what uh, arc seconds mean. Take a degree on the sky, divide it into 60 pieces. That's an arc minute. Take each of those 60 pieces, divide them into 60 more. That's arc seconds. The moon is about half of a degree on the, size, on the sky. So a full moon is half of a degree. 30 arc minutes, 1,800 arc seconds. You're measuring, to get Alpha Centauri, you're measuring about 1 2,000th the diameter of the full moon. Well, no wonder the Greeks couldn't do it. Right? If I had to measure something that was shifting by a, somewhat of a fraction of a full moon, I might be able to see that. But 
a one two thousandth of it? You need, not even Galileo's telescopes would pick that up. In fact, it wasn't until a couple hundred years after Galileo that telescopes got large enough that we were able to find this. So the first, uh, first measurement was in the 1830s, and we now have measurements for far more. Far more of these. All right, so trying to define, when we look at our nearby stars, we have, I want to define something else. We use light years. One of the other terms that's used that isn't used as much in this textbook, but you sometimes hear is the parsec. A parsec is related to parallax. In fact, that's where the name comes from. It is a distance at which a star will have a parallax, for the first part of it, parallax, of one arc second. So a parsec means it has a parallax of one arc second. And a parsec is about 3.26 light years. So why don't we always use the, parallel, the parsec? Well, it really is comparable to a light year. It's a few times bigger, but it doesn't change. It doesn't give us any better sense of scale, but it does relate it directly to the parallax. So something that is one parsec away will have a parallax of one arc second. There aren't any stars there. There are no stars within 3.26 light years other than our sun. Yes, our sun is within that, but no other star is within that. So one parsec, um, second, this is five light years, this doesn't light years, so one parsec would be right within this very, smaller than this inner circle here. The nearest star, Alpha Centauri down here, is a little over a parsec. It's about four and a half light years, so not quite one and a half parsecs away. So there aren't any that are that big. So there aren't any stars that have a larger parallax angle. And this is what the Greeks did not understand. They just didn't comprehend how big things were, that you were getting out there to things like, you know, five parsecs out here. Now you start to actually get to a few stars. Within 15 light years, be about five parsecs roughly, there are dozens of stars. However, most of these are not ones you can see with the naked eye. Most, remember, remember we talked about some of the nearby stars and the brightest stars? The stars that we see in the sky are not the ones that are close to us. Most of the nearby stars are faint red stars. And you need a telescope or binoculars to see them, even though they're some of the closer stars to us. Uh, things like Barnard stars, not visible without a pair of binoculars. Uh, many of these others here are not. Some are. Sirius is one of the brighter stars and is relatively close to us. Alpha Centauri, well, you can see if you're going the southern hemisphere. You can't see it from our location. You've got to get further south because it's in the very southern portion of the sky. So few of them are visible with the naked eye, but the vast majority of these are not. Only a handful of them you can actually see without a telescope. So it takes a while. It took a while to be able, not, not only did it take a while to get parallax measurements, but it took a while to expand upon them to really be able to get a lot of measurements and start to measure distances to stars. Because not only are you measuring a small angle, but you've got to measure it accurately. So if you measure that one one-thousandth of an arc second with an error of you know, one one-thousandth of an arc second, you're really not getting a good distance measurement. You need to be able to measure it far more, far more accurately than that. And that's what took some satellites that were put up. And in fact, Hipparchos, put up in 1989, was able to measure stars out to about 100 parsecs, 300 light years. Well, that's tremendous. That's only a tiny fraction of our galaxy, which is 100,000 light years across. So we're getting out to 300 light years. That's great. That's a lot better than we could do from Earth. But it was only, still only a tiny fraction of the size of the galaxy. Uh, Gaia, which has now been up since 2013, doing much better, able to measure out to 30,000 30, light years, about a third the size of our galaxy. So any star within 30,000 light years, it can get a reasonably accurate uh, parallax on. Uh, if you get the, the link there, there's actually, you can go and explore their data. So you can actually get a three-dimensional view and play around with that to be able to uh, look at it. Eventually, it's going to map about seven and a half million stars. Give us an actual view of what does our 
galaxy look like? Well, we get the general overview, but now we're getting the details. And to be, able, to be able to understand things, we really need to look at those details. How are things actually working within our galaxy? Not just, oh, we can get the grand picture of it, which is wonderful, but we're really being able to get the details. And then in the future, hopefully, we'll be able to get other distances. So parallax is great. It's the only direct method we have that actually measures directly the distance. Everything else builds on this. So the other methods that we're going to look at today, later in the class, all build on parallax. Parallax is the stepping stone. So the better we get this, Hipparchos helped getting it out to about 300 light years. Gaia helps even more getting out to 30,000 light years. Helps us to calibrate the other distance measurements that we're going to look at. So finishing up this section, again, Radar measurements we can use within the solar system. Parallax, our solar neighborhood, we're now expanding that out to a good chunk of the galaxy. Not all of it, but a good chunk of our galaxy we're actually going to be able to map in three dimensions now because we can actually determine distances. We knew, we knew what direction they were, but we had a really tough time figuring out whether they were 100 light years or 110 light years away. And when it got to 1,000, was it 1,000 light years or was it 1,200 light years away? Well, that's not that bad accuracy, but in terms of getting it, that's a big difference in 200 light years. So it didn't give us really good maps. And the space observatories are really helping with that now, uh, being able to give us a three-dimensional view of our galaxy. So we have to, then we have to use this. We have to use this to build upon, to use other ways of measuring distances. And that's what I'm going to look at in the last two sections here. And the first one looks at certain types of stars, variable stars. Well, a variable star is a star that varies in brightness. So there are several different types that I'm going to talk about here, but they all give you something vaguely like this. The brightness will be some magnitude, and it will get fainter and fainter, and then it gets brighter, and then fainter again, and then it gets brighter. And that time range can vary from hours to days, to weeks, to years. And it can be re very regular like this, or it can be very irregular. So we can look at a couple different ones, and we are going to look at some of these uh, in detail. Most of what we're going to be looking at, though, are what we call the intrinsic variables. Intrinsic variables are stars, with, are, are stars that are actually changing themselves. They are pulsating. They are getting brighter. They are getting fainter. They're putting off more energy up here, they're putting off less energy down here. The star is actually changing itself. Eclipsing variables are also interesting for other effects, but they're just one star passing in front of another. The star itself isn't changing its brightness. Something blocks in front of it, eclipses part of it, blocks off some of its light. That will cause it to get fainter, but the star itself has not changed. So these are not the kind of stars that would ever be able to support life. If the sun were getting brighter, and this is changing by about a magnitude, roughly. Magnitude is a factor of two and a half in brightness, so it's getting two and a half times brighter than two and a half times fainter. If our sun got two and a half times brighter, that would vaporize our oceans. We'd be gone. If it got two and a half times fainter, everything would freeze. So you're not going to have life around a star like this, but they are important types of stars to be able to determine distances. The other types that we have, the other type that I'm not really going to go into much at this point, are cataclysmic variables. These occur irregularly. They don't show a regular pattern like this. And they're sometimes what we call a nova, and we'll look more at supernovae coming up where a star suddenly flares in brightness for a short period of time and then fades back down. So it does something where it gets really bright, slowly drops back down, and then sits there again. But something cataclysmic happened to it. We'll look at them a little bit later, but in terms of distances, that's not what we're looking at right now. And then I'm going to show you in terms of some light curves, but I'll give you an example here. The light curve just shows how the star varies in brightness over time. So. At one point here, it's so bright. And this, all these little dots would be individual measurements of the brightness of the star. 
So how bright is the star at each time? Well, the star is getting fainter and fainter and fainter. It bottoms out here, and then I measure it later. It starts to increase, and you can see a regular pattern. And the star, the one that I'm showing here, is actually a, uh, a star named Delta Cephei, fourth brightest star in the constellation of Cepheus is what that means. You know, alpha is the brightest, then beta, then gamma, then delta. So delta is the fourth brightest star in the constellation of Cepheus. It's important because it's also the namesake for a certain class of stars that we call the Cepheid variables. So they're named after Delta Cephei, which is the one I showed you, I showed you its light curve. But they were the, really one of the first, this was, this was the first of it to be detected, and they can vary in brightness with a period of three days to about two months. Well, that's interesting. We can measure them out. But the most important thing about it is what is called the period luminosity relationship. And this was found a little over 100 years ago by Henrietta Leavitt, who found that there is a relationship between how bright the star was on average. Yes, it gets brighter and fainter, but if you take its average brightness, there was a relationship between its average brightness and how long it took for its period, how long it took to come back to that same level again. So if it was at its peak and it took it some number of days to come back to the same peak again, she found that there was a relationship between this. So that very short period, Cepheid variables, ones that change in just a couple of days, might have, would have very small luminosities, maybe only a hundred times the luminosity of our sun. Ones that took two months to vary might be luminosities of 10,000 times the luminosity of our sun. So why is this important? It gives us a way to determine the luminosity of the star. Brightness is easy. How bright does the star appear? Take a telescope, put a little uh, meter on it, calculate how much light is coming. We can figure out how bright it appears to be. How bright is it really? How much energy is it putting off? Well, it depends on whether that star is five light years away or 500 or 5,000. That makes a difference. If it's real close, it's going to look bright just because it's nearby. Like our sun. Our sun looks really, really bright, but it's not. If you put our sun out at... 30 light years, it would be one of the fainter stars in the sky. So it looks bright only because it's so close. We need to know that distance to be able to determine the luminosity, which is the intrinsic property of the star. That doesn't depend on the distance. So once we can determine that, if you can determine the luminosity and the apparent brightness, that's the easy one. Just got to look at a telescope. Okay, here's how, here's how bright it is. You can use the difference between them to give you the distance. Here's how bright it appears. Here's how much energy it's putting out, so it should look this bright. We know that distance difference between those. We can then figure out the, dis the distance. So that's how we can use these. Uh, Cepheids, again, the first two parts are really easy to measure. The period's easy to measure. All you got to do is start watch the star. And the periods are relatively short. If these periods were hundreds of years long, it wouldn't help us. If it took it 300 years to go through a cycle, you know, we'd still be getting the first cycle down on it. With time with the advent of the telescope, we wouldn't even be into the, We'd be just starting the second cycle. So the period is very easy to measure. It's just days, weeks, months. We can observe stars over that period of time, measure the period. We can use the period luminosity relationship we know the period. We use the table, the graph that Henrietta Leavitt gave us to determine the luminosity. We know the luminosity, the apparent brightness, that's easy. It's how bright it appears in the sky. There are easy ways to put a telescope on it, detect it, and measure its magnitude. How bright does it appear in the sky? If we do that, then we can determine the distance using this inverse square law. So, so bright, as you get twice as far away, it gets one quarter as bright. There's a way to calculate. I'm not going to go through the details of how we calculate it, but just the fact that we can. We can actually calculate the distance. So it gives us a way to calculate the distance. However, we need something first. This is where I said parallax was important. 
And parallax was important because we need to calibrate this. We've got to find the distance to one Cepheid first to figure out the luminosities. We know that there's a relationship between the period and the luminosity, but if we don't know what those, if we don't know what the distance to one of these is, we can't calibrate it. It could slide up or down on that scale. So this is a problem because the only way we have, as we've talked about so far, is to measure parallax. So we're going to look at some other methods coming up, but we need some way to be able to calibrate this. At, at this point, there were none close enough. Now with Gaia, yes, we're getting to the point where some of the Cepheids will be close enough to actually get a measure, measurable parallax, and that will help us calibrate this distance scale even better. The more accurately we can calibrate it, the better it will be, the more accurate it will be. Because if you ever go, if you ever look at distances, how far away something is, it'll often give you, oh, it's, you know, 500 light years plus or minus 100 or plus or minus 50. I mean, the distances are not known very well. The further you get out, the worse it gets. Well, the Andromeda galaxy, is it 2 million light years away? I see 2.5 million light years. That's a half a million light years. That's a big difference between whether it's 2 million or 2.5 million. So how accurately do we know those distances even for nearby things? We're going to be, by the end of the course, talking about things that are billions of light years away. You know, how accurately can we determine those? It all goes back to parallax. Parallax is the first rung of the ladder we use of all these different things that we're going to use to determine distances. So we need to use some other methods. We'll talk about those. But I wanted to also put the aside in there that Cepheids were very important in determining that there were other galaxies out there. About a hundred years, a little less than a hundred years ago, uh, Edwin Hubble, right, Hubble Space Telescope named after him, found Cepheid variables in the Andromeda galaxy. He could use that to determine the distance to the Andromeda galaxy. And at the time, it was a big debate. Are all these spiral nebulae part of our own galaxy? Or are they other galaxies? And there were half the astronomers thought one way and half the astronomers thought the other way because there was no proof. We hadn't been able to demonstrate it until Edwin Hubble was able to get the measurements that said, yeah, Cepheid variables, we measured how far away they are, and guess what? Andromeda is not part of our galaxy. It's well outside of our galaxy because we knew some distances within our galaxy. We had a rough idea of how big our galaxy was. And if you find that Andromeda is 20 times further away, that would be a big error in, term, in how we've determined distances within our galaxy. So these variables were also important because not that long after it, if you remember Henrietta Leavitt did this in 1908, 1920s, a couple decades later, we were able to use it to show that there are other galaxies out there. We'd seen them, but we didn't know for sure what they were. Now, Cepheids are one type of these. There's also another type of star uh, called the RR Lyrae stars. The name of this one is how astronomers name variable stars. So Lyrae tells us the constellation it's in. So RR Lyrae is the constellation of um, Lyra, the harp. And they are labeled by the first one discovered is R. I'm not going to go through all the details, but yeah, the first, the first variable star discovered in a constellation is given R, S, T, so on, through the end of the alphabet. Then they come back to RR, RS, RT, RU, and so on. And they continue that pattern. So this is one of the very earliest stars to be discovered within, uh, within that constellation. Then they continue on and they go through the alphabet like that and eventually it ends up, you know, when you get down to the uh, very end of this, you go to the beginning of the alphabet and do A, B, A, C, and until you get back around to the point where you'd be starting over again and then they just number them. Takes care of about, five, takes care of about the first 500 variables within a constellation. So that's just a little bit of a decide about how, what the naming means. Why is it called RR Lyrae? It's just our naming convention for variable stars. These are another type of intrinsic variable. Here's our Cepheids up here. They went from a couple days up to a couple months. Our Lyrae stars are all pretty much the same period. They're all less than a day, about half a day, about 12 hours or so. 
they fit in kind of they kind of fit in with the Cepheids there. But the thing is, when you measure an RLIRA star, they're pretty close. They have pretty much the same period. That means they have pretty much the same luminosity. So they all have the same period. They all have roughly the same luminosity, about 50 times the luminosity of our sun. The nice thing with that is that you don't even need that extra step that we did with the Cepheids. With the Cepheids, you had to measure the period and say, okay, it falls here, and that's so much luminosity. <coughs> now you don't have to do that if you find an Aurelire star. The bad thing is they're a lot fainter, so they're harder to see at large distances. They're not as bright as some of the Cepheids, which can be seen over tremendous distances. But here, as soon as you identify something as an Aurelire star, we know its distance. We know how far away it is. So we can determine that immediately. And these are something that has been used to map the size of our Milky Way. They don't really help us much outside of our galaxy, but to map the size of our Milky Way, actually a pretty good uh, method to be able to do this. All right, let's finish up this section. Again, I talked about the very different types of variable stars. I went over some of them very briefly. But the intrinsic, the periodic ones, are the ones that we can use to measure distances. The Cepheids have a period-luminosity relationship. The Aurelire stars have the same luminosity. Once we know, either way, we're using their period and their type of star to be able to determine what their luminosity is, which allows us to get the distance. All right, questions? I've got one more section, and we'll finish up this one, which is another type of uh, parallax that we use. The HR diagram is another way to determine distances. The whole key of distance, you're trying to find the luminosity. You find the luminosity. If you have a way to find the luminosity, you can get the distances. So the nice thing would be, can you use, the whole idea of using the HR diagram is, can you use the spectral class to determine the distance. Well, if you think about that, let's ignore everything else up here, but if you remember the main sequence, well, if you know what the spectral class is precisely, that tells you the luminosity. It's a pretty straight, nice curve. So very uh, hot star over here has a very high luminosity. A very cool star over here has a very low luminosity. So that's great. The thing we've got to watch out for on it is that there's also those giant stars, super giant stars. So where do you fall? If you find a star like the sun, is it here on the main sequence? Is it here on the giant branch? Is it way up here in the super giant branch? So we not only have to determine the spectral class <coughs> or the temperature, but we have to determine the luminosity class as well. <coughs> so you could find a star like our sun. Our sun is a G2 star. I gave you the OBAFGKM classifications. We subdivide those in through 0 through 9 to more finely divide it. Our sun fits in the 2 range of the G band, G band here. So you start out with G0, G1, G2 would be where our sun occurs. But you could also have a star, same temperature. It's a G2 star. It's exactly like the sun in terms of temperature. But it's a luminosity class 3 meaning it's a giant star, so it falls up here. Well, if I use this, I either have to know it's the luminosity of the sun, or it might be 100 times the luminosity of the sun. I have to be able to know which one it is. So I just want to just emphasize, you can't just use the spectral class because not every star is on the main sequence. If you know it's a main sequence star, that's great because then you can just determine the luminosity directly. So you could have some issues with determining the distance. You're going to... You, know, you could overestimate or underestimate a, the distance to a star if you misclassify its luminosity class. So this is, gives us the idea that the term that we use is spectroscopic parallax. So spectroscopic parallax has nothing to do with parallax, except that it's a way of measuring distances. So parallax was a shifting of things. This has nothing to do with it. It really means it's a spectroscopic way of determining distances. Spectroscopic in that you measure, you take the spectrum of the star to determine its spectral class. You find out where it falls along here. You figure out where it falls this direction. Is it a main sequence star, a giant star, or a supergiant star? 
and then you can determine its luminosity. So, works really good for main sequence stars. You just find it there, find its luminosity. You know how bright, you know its luminosity. You know its apparent brightness. Remember, that's easy. How bright does it appear from the Earth? If we figure out the luminosity, then we have the distance. Now, again, it needs to be calibrated. So we need to find stars of known distance to figure out what this scale actually is, where the, how accurately we know this scale. Is one right here or is one down here or is one up here? How accurately we know that scale tells us how accurately we're going to be able to determine distances. So we've now got that pretty well with Hipparchos and Gaia. We have a pretty good calibration of exactly where these stars fit along the main sequence, which allows us to get this really well. And once you get it calibrated accurately, then you can use it for any other star. Works especially well for the stars way up here. They're bright stars that we can see at large distances. I can see them. I'm not going to see these stars very far away, so they're not going to help us much. They might help us getting the calibration down because we can get accurate distances here, but these are the harder ones to get distances to. So as we get that calibrated, we know that this curve very accurately, we can determine the distances. We get the luminosity. We know the apparent brightness. The difference between those two gives you the distance. So again, the calibration is the key. And that's kind of the problem with the distances, that everything depends on each step. So we need, we need parallax to be able to get spectroscopic parallax. We might need spectroscopic parallax to be able to calibrate where some of those giant Cepheids fall. So errors in the first one cause errors in the second one, and the errors get bigger and bigger because you're building upon the previous steps. And that's sometimes what we call the cosmic distance ladder, is that there is not any distance measurement that's going to work for all stars. If you've got a close enough star, you can do parallax. With uh, Gaia within 30,000 light years, that's still a small, tiny fraction of the universe when we start talking about billions of light years. We're only at thousands of light years. Cepheids are our Lyrae stars. Once we calibrate them, we can use those to nearby galaxies. Still doesn't help us out. They might help us a few million light years. They still don't help us outside of our local group of galaxies. And you have to depend on them being a certain type of star. You've got to be able to find that type of star. You can use spectroscopic parallax if the stars are visible. Again, that's only going to work for nearby stars within our galaxy. Maybe the very brightest stars in the very nearest galaxies you're going to be able to see. It's not going to help us out to the edge of the universe. And we're going to have to look later on, how do we get distances to galaxies then? Because this might help us with the few closest galaxies, but we're going to have to come up with some new distance measurements, some new ways of measuring distance to be able to get distances to further galaxies. And the other thing I've been emphasizing, these are indirect methods. They are not direct methods of determining the distance. They have to be calibrated. Parallax is not. Parallax is a direct way to measure the distance. If I measure the parallax of a star, I measure that angular shift geometrically, that gives me the distance. Anything else, I have to calibrate. I have to know the distance to one of these variable stars in order to determine distances to others. So I have to be able to know one to be able to get others. Same thing with spectroscopic parallax. I've got to know the distance. I've got to calibrate where that main sequence falls in order to be able to do that. And some of the problems are that you know, any measurement, right? go way back to lab number one, measurement errors. There are always measurement errors. So if we measure a star, if we pick out something, we measure a star, and it's an error of 10%, when we're looking at these distances, that's pretty major. I mean, that's a, that could mean 10 light, for just 100 light years, that's 10 light years either way. That we're pretty confident it's within that. So astronomers get very used to that. You know, having things like 40 and 50% errors are not unusual. We can say, oh, it might be 5,000 light years, but maybe it's 8,000 light years away. And it's just, it, you become accustomed to that because it's very hard to build up on these. And this gives you kind of a range of what, how useful they are. Parallax, 
Well, it works to the nearest star and it works out to about 30,000 light years. HR, uh, RR Lyrae stars get us out to about 300,000 light years. They really only help us within our galaxy. They're relatively faint. The spectroscopic parallax may be out to a million light years. That gets us halfway to the Andromeda galaxy. So some local galaxies it does work for, but it doesn't work for anything further out. Cepheid variables are really big. The biggest, brightest ones, we can get out to 60 million light years. That's getting us out there, but it's still only a tiny fraction of the size of the universe. A galaxy 60 million light years away, well, it's not just in our, local, not in our local group, it's out beyond that, but it's in our local cluster of galaxies. It's still relatively close to us. Because that's 60 million light years, well, we'll have galaxies that are hundreds of millions, billion li a billion light years, 10 billion light years away, pushing out to 13 billion light years away, the size of our universe. That's only a tiny fraction of this. We're not even a tenth of the way out to the edge of the universe yet. Not even 10%. So we still we need other methods. I will come back. We'll talk about those when we talk about galaxies later on. But I just want to we're doing right now I'm going over the distances that help you with stars. And the problem is that any errors here build up because this is used to calibrate these. And then this is used to calibrate this. So if you have an error here of just a few percent, it might give you a larger percentage error here and a larger percentage error here. And guess what? When we get out to galaxies, it's the same thing. We need these steps to calibrate the distances to galaxies to go down to the next steps to get even further distances. So even if you do these really well, you're getting them to within a couple percent. That's great. But that couple percent builds up each time. Each time you take another step up that ladder, and the errors grow. So it's quite possible that you, by the time you get out to the edge of the universe, you're talking 20, 30% errors. But that's why we want to get this the most accurately. You've got to get that first step really accurate uh, first. So finishing up here and finishing up this chapter, we looked at the uh, HR diagram as a way of being able to determine distances. We can determine their luminosities. We can do determine their distances. We need to know their spectral class their temperature, and we need to know their luminosity class to be able to do that. And the cosmic distance ladder, we've started on it. We've gone up the first few rungs, got a ways to go still, to get out to the edge of the universe. But it's steps used to determine distances, and what we'll see, you know, each step builds on the previous one. So if you've got a weak rung early on, everything starts to fall apart. You've got to get those first rungs very solid to be able to determine distances, especially when we get out to the edge of the universe. Alrighty, questions? So we're all caught up. We're back on schedule perfectly right now. So hopefully that'll hold through for the rest of the semester. <laughs>